Today's passage is uh, Ephesians 6, 21 to 24. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister to the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ and with love incorruptible. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, so caveat about that text, I was back and forth on it this week, and I was like, first I was looking back at it, and I was like, who, whose bright idea was it to make that a standalone text to preach on <laughs> to wrap up our 20 sermons on Ephesians? And that was me, so in a moment of bad judgment eight months ago or whatever, that happened. And then I got excited about something I saw in the text, and then I studied it further and realized it wasn't actually what it was saying, and so I couldn't say that. And um, then I wrote a sermon, and then like this morning at 1 a.m., sitting in a like empty airport in Minneapolis, I had a little bit different idea. So I reconstructed this a little bit. I think this would be helpful. I think this would be good. But Lord, help us all, right? Um, no. So how this comes together is I just started thinking, I mean, like you do with any text of Scripture, like, why does God have Paul write these, what could feel like throwaway verses at the end of an incredibly doctrinally rich book? Just like, hey, friends, this other guy's coming and uh, grace and peace and Lord Jesus Christ and we're done, you know? And it can just feel like a sign off. And it, and it was common in writing letters at this time that you would have an introduction and then kind of a body and than a sign-off, and so he's, he's keeping with custom. But as I started thinking through, like, what is Paul trying to accomplish in these last couple verses that isn't just a throwaway? Of course, it dawned on me he's doing three things. He's communicating endearment, endorsement, and emphasis. This is not most of the sermon, but endearment. He, he's like, I love you. I care for you deeply. So what I've written, and some of it is complicated and complex, and some of it's very heady, and some of it's very challenging for how you're living your lives. And, you know, some of you have felt that as we've preached through it and just tried to stay faithful to the text. You're like, I don't, I don't like that you said that because I don't like that Paul said that. But he's saying, like, I'm saying all of that in the context of a commitment to you, an endearment, an affection. And I want to say that again in closing. Um, I say endorsement because he mentions this friend of his, Tychicus, and he's going to say, hey, I'm sending this guy. And notice he says two things about him. He's a beloved brother and a faithful minister. And you all know this experience where maybe you're, you're traveling or you have a friend traveling and you realize like you can introduce someone that you love and that's been a help to you in your life. You can introduce them to someone who doesn't know them yet. We actually just saw some new friends in Minneapolis that were that way, that this guy in L.A. knew Marty and knew this other woman and was like, you two should meet. We got to hang out with them as like followers of Jesus, We'd never met. It was amazing just because of this 
camaraderie that we have in Jesus and in our faith. And I got to talk about like fun stuff and also some like pretty important stuff going on in our lives and our families and our churches. So Paul's doing this thing where it's basically like you should receive this guy who's going to help you. Um, And he's like, "I I love this guy. And you all know that, like, even if you're, like, welcoming, you're like, I don't know this person. And someone that you care about and that cares about you is like, you got to meet this person. I, like, I love this person. And he's a faithful minister. Like, he's committed. He's trustworthy in what he's going to say to you. So that's what I mean by endorsement. So it's not, as I'm signing off, like, hey, this guy's going to come. He's going to bring this letter. You're going to read it. You're going to start working through it. He has my commendation to work through it with you. And then thirdly, I say emphasis, because what I mean here is Paul begins and ends the letter very similarly. And I know it's been months since we started out in verses 1 and 2, but this is what he said there. He said, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he's often running immediately about like, and this God loves you. And because he loves you, he chose you and he adopted you. And he did all these things to accomplish your salvation. And now he's still working in your lives and in your church. And then at the end of the book, he comes right back to the same couple themes and couple keywords. And I kind of see it like this, you know, in a, a TED talk or whatever. That very often, like, the very first thing you say and the very last thing you say is mostly what people remember. And you're, you're unpacking that all through the middle section of your talk, whether it's six minutes or 30 minutes. But those, those, that, that first introduction and then kind of unpacking it and then kind of resolving it and reminding you, like, here's what I just said. And I hear Paul kind of saying something like this, like, okay, I wrote a lot of things to you. If you only remember one thing, make sure you remember this, grace, peace, faith, and love. Okay, so there's this re-emphasis of some of the basic themes of the letter. Um, A second way that Paul emphasizes these themes is what I just said, which is like, he's like, I'm sending Tychicus, and notice he says, for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, that's the affection side, like you want to know how I'm doing. It's so personal. It's not just theological, not just doctrinal. It's like, you, you want to know how I'm doing. I'm going to send a friend to tell you as I live under house arrest and I can't come to you. He's going to say, this is how he's doing. But notice this other thing. And that he may encourage your hearts. And we think encouragement as what? Like a reassurance. He's going he's gonna to support you. He's going to bolster you. It's like a shot in the arm. He's going to inspire you, right? And I, I think Paul is saying that. Like when he comes and you have this word from me that I've received from the Lord to share with you, it's going to be inspiring. It's going to be encouraging in that way. But I think there's something else here that's more important than even just like a shot in the arm, a boost of morale, uh, like way to go, church. And that is, this word encourage is the Greek word parakaleo, which is a compound word that would literally mean something like to call alongside. And we don't translate it that way. It's not like uh, I'm sending him to call alongside. Because there's always a, like, to call alongside or to come alongside for what? 
And as this word is used throughout the New Testament, throughout other Greek literature, it means something like to come alongside to comfort. It could be to come alongside to encourage. But usually there's this, this emphasis of like someone's going to come alongside you to, to urge you, to plead with you, to implore you, to exhort you to something. I think it was Tim Keller who defined it this way. Parakaleo is to sympathetically, earnestly insist on the truth. And I think that's really what Paul's thinking as he's writing this letter, handing it over to his beloved friend and this faithful servant who, who is free to travel over to Ephesus. He's saying, like, you're going to get my letter, but then this guy is going to come along with the letter, and he's going to walk alongside this written letter, and he's going to talk about it with you because he spent time with me. And he's going to say, okay, what did, what did Paul mean by that? And that's kind of what we've done over the last many weeks is we look at the text, we say, what did that mean in context? What did that mean in the time that Paul wrote it? What's he referring to? How do we apply that? And I see Tychicus as this faithful servant of God who's like, I'm going to come alongside you and I'm going to help you understand, number one, what is, what is he saying? What does this mean? What does God want you to know? And two, I'm going to urge you to do this. Like, church, you can do this. You can practice this in faith. So that's verses 21 and 22. Now with 23 and 24, I want to unpack this the way I think Tychicus would. And this is kind of like the little change I made in my message in the airport is um, if, if Paul's saying he's going to show up and he's going to encourage you, that's kind of what I want to do this morning with some of these keywords is just walk you back through some of this. And like, I'm going to, I'm going to be talking to you as a church that's like here in Colorado, in Denver, in 2023. But I want to do so in, I think, the spirit in the way that Tychicus would have walked those first Ephesian believers through this. Um, beginning with, I, I think Tychicus would say, like, what is Paul really saying? If you, if you get one thing from these closing verses, Paul's saying something like this. The church is a family of believers who live in the reality of God's peace, love, and grace. The church is a family of believers who are helping each other walk in the reality of these big themes. And I hear in that Tychicus now has a need to say, okay, Paul's showing you, church, who you are, how you got that way, and how you live in light of the fact that that's who God says you are, okay? So let's kind of go off and running with those. It's three points, but I'm going to take the last two. How did you get the status that Paul says you have, and what does that mean? And I'm going to kind of merge those together so we'll have application throughout instead of just getting to the end and being like, here's the application drop, okay? So who are we, number one? And Paul says, like I just said, you're a family of believers. Look at verse 23 where Paul refers to the whole church as brothers. And I want to say two things about that because we we do live in a different age and brothers carries for us the male gender, right? And we're like, well, what about sisters, right? Brothers, do you mean brothers and sisters? And it's like, well, yes and no, um, because the word brothers back then and the way that you would address a whole group of people as brothers would mean something more like siblings. It would not carry that, like I'm only talking to the males. At the same time, and we've seen this earlier in this book, there are times where Paul says, you all, church, every single one of you, you are sons of God by this gift of God. 
And you're like, no, 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 I'm a, I'm a daughter of God. And I get it. You, you are a daughter of God, but you're also a son in this sense. Back then, only the sons got the inheritance. And Paul's saying something very important. He's saying whether you're male or female, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, whether you're rich or poor, whether you're a free person or a slave, you're all sons because every single one of you get the inheritance of Jesus. Okay, so now he's writing to them and he's saying, you're siblings, you're brothers, okay? And I think this is special because many of those people who are reading this letter or hearing it read are like, yeah, yeah, we know Paul. And if you go back to the early sermons here on, on Ephesians, we said then that according to the book of Acts, Paul spent over two years first planting the church in Ephesus and then discipling it, continuing to minister the gospel, continuing to help people grow in following Jesus. So he knew a lot of them. But now Paul's been gone from Ephesus for a very long time, like many, many years. And as the church continues to grow and continues to preach the gospel, there are many new believers who would have no personal connection to Paul. And yet when Paul writes the letter, he's not like, okay, former friends and also like a bunch of strangers, grace and peace. He says, you're all brothers. You're all family. And I love that. I mean, as simple a point as this is, again, if you, if you review Ephesians this week or if you just think back, this is one of the most doctrinally heavy books of the entire New Testament. I mean, maybe Romans and Hebrews give it a run for the money, but Ephesians, I mean, I think it has the longest Greek sentence in the New Testament where it just goes and goes and goes. And you're like, how many breaths do I have to take in the middle of the sentence just to finish the sentence? And how do you parse this and break it up to make sense of what he's saying? Um, but, but underneath that doctrine is not some like Ivy League PhD who's just like, let me blow your minds with how smart I am and use big words that you can't understand, under all of that is this pastoral heart of like, I, I love you. I want to see you shepherded in the faith as a family. And I want to just pause there as simple as a point of, as this is and just ask you, does church feel like family to you? Does it feel like family? That as you come to a Sunday service just like this, and sit in a big room, or as you go to your individual Bible studies, gospel community groups, things like yesterday where a bunch of you are serving others together, like outward-faced, or if you're just getting together as a bunch of friends, and it's like we're, we're in the same church, um, but we're, this is friends getting together for coffee or dinner or whatever. Like, do you ever stop and think? It is amazing that God brought this group of people together. I think I said this last week, but, but apart from the work of Jesus and our faith in Jesus, most of us in this room probably would not know each other. There wouldn't be a touch point, a connection point for our lives to intersect. Now, some of you were already friends and you happened to work together or be neighbors or whatever, but, but most of us wouldn't know each other. So I think it's wise once in a while, just pause and be like, God put me here in this local church, these are local brothers and sisters. And I don't want church to certainly just feel like an event or service that I go to. Certainly not just a building, but it's, it's more than just community, it's, it's family. And because it's family, I would ask, do you pray for each other as if you're family? 
do you do you accept responsibility for each other as if you're family? Not like, oh, it's, that's your problem. But you're like, no, 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 we're family. So your problem is, <laughs> is my problem. I, I come alongside to, to, to use the resources that God has given me. We help each other. We're not sitting in judgment on each other, but there's, there's an affection. There's a commitment to each other. I honestly think like if Tychicus could like time travel, show up in America in like the 2000s, I think he would be like, why is the American church so influenced by these cultural values of autonomy and individuality and materialism? I mean, I think he would just be like, American Christians seem to treat church not as family, but as just like another consumer product. We run out of toothpaste, right? So I go to the grocery store and I'm walking down like, why is there a toothpaste aisle, first of all? I, I think there should be two toothpastes. Like, one is the blue gel, and one is the white paste. And you're like, I get this one, or I get this one. But there are a million choices. And I'm walking along, and like, why, why, would, I, why would I choose that one, or that one, or this one? And I think we're just like, oh, I don't know, that one's on sale. Who's, who's the sale people on toothpaste? Then you're like, well, I'm at Costco, and it's, it's a volume thing, right? <laughs> or... Like, I don't know, you're like, this one promises to make my teeth the whitest, and man, do I love coffee, so I could use that. And none of them do anything, by the way. I'll just fill you in on that. They don't. They don't whiten your teeth. Um, or maybe you're like, my, my dentist recommended this one. I, name, name recognition. Like, I don't know. Or like chips or anything. It's just like they're, they're not two choices or one choice. It's like there's this proliferation of choices. And the American church is like that. There's this proliferation of all these choices, like slightly different flavors. And if we're not careful, we can approach church as like, what flavor do I feel like right now? And I hear this, like from people that come and go, it's like, you know, where, where's the right vibe right now? Where, where are the cool people going right now? Like, can you imagine choosing family like that? Nobody would. Where's the love, the affection, the commitment, the sacrifice, instead of like, what social club do I want to be personally associated with so I can network these people? You don't network your family. You love your family. You're committed to your family, okay? So he's talking about family. He's talking about love. He's talking about like real affection and real commitment. And then again, as I said, I want to merge these last two points of like, how did we become family then? And what do we do about it? How do we then live? Well, I want to back away from like, how do we become spiritual family? To just asking like, how does anyone become family? Why are you in your family? Right? Um, and, and most of you would say, well, by birth. Right? You're in your family by birth. So you didn't, you didn't go to a mall and be like, what, what family do I want to belong to? You didn't go to a website and be like, what, what family do I want to choose? There's a very real sense in which God chose your family for you. Like, we did not pick our kids. Our kids did not pick us. God is like, I'm doing a new thing. Ta-da, you're together. And you're family. That's how most families work. I also have family by adoption. Whether someone's orphaned or abandoned or a parent is not able to take care of them, um, we have immediate family members who have adopted children, and they'll say, like, we are 
choosing you, and we are giving you all the rights and all the privileges and all the responsibilities as our biological children. You are now our child. We are family. And they act like we're family. And then the third way we become family is through marriage. Um, you know, hopefully, I can say this of all of you, if you're married, you weren't family before you were married. Like, that's not good, right? But you become family by covenant, by covenant of saying, like, I love this person. I want to walk through life with this person. And he or she wants to walk through life with me. And we covenant to each other to become a new family together. And what's fascinating to me is those three ways that we become family, just real, like biological family or nuclear family, are reflected as spiritual truths. You know, it's like Paul says them all here in this book, but we become Christian family through the new birth of regeneration, big word, re, again, generation, birth. Like it was Jesus that told this religious leader, Nicodemus, don't, don't marvel, don't be surprised that you must be born again. That's where that term comes from, you must be born again. Like it's one thing to be born of the flesh and placed into a fleshly family, but you need to be born of the spirit and placed into a spiritual family. So we become family because God is saving you and you and you and you and you and you and putting us together in a family. Paul goes on in this even in chapter one, to mention adoption. Like we, we didn't belong to God. We were outsiders to his family. But God, he says, he chose you before the foundation of the world just because he loves you. And he says, like, I adopt you into my family. Like Jesus is the only eternal uncreated son of God. But all these other sons and daughters, I'm choosing you and I'm bringing you into my family, which means you get the inheritance. You get all the rights and benefits that Jesus, the eternal uncreated son gets. And then talk about marriage. I mean, we come to chapter five of this short letter and Paul is holding up the, the, the marriage of a husband and wife and saying, husband, you want to know how to love your wife? Then look at Christ's love for the church, his bride. Like he gave his life for her. How did he bring you into his family? Like through marriage, another metaphor. Now, before all this, we, we weren't the children of God. I mean, no, there's a generic sense in which we could say, well, because God created us, and the Bible does use this term, because God created us, there's a sense in which you're all creative sons and daughters of God. But Paul also says here in chapter two in particular, he's like, but before this new birth, before this adoption, before this marriage, he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. We read that just a few moments ago in our confession time. We were dead in our... Con we weren't alive spiritually. We were dead. We were children of wrath. We were separated from Christ. We were without hope and without God in this world. We were strangers and aliens. As I said, most of us would have never met because we're all just outsiders. And some of you are outside over here and some of you are outside over here and some of you are outside back there and up there. But we're, we're not insiders. We're not family. And I think this is an important truth that, that Paul is sharing. And if I were Tychicus and I'm going to the church, I'm just like, hey, church, let me remind you that sin, we all sin. Sometimes we sin intentionally. Sometimes we sin accidentally. Sometimes we sin by what we do. Sometimes we sin by what we leave undone. Sometimes we sin in our attitudes. And we're like, we're mature enough and spiritual enough not to act on them. But you wish you could kill that person. 
or you hold bitterness in your heart or resentment or whatever. So that sin, here's the point, separates us from a holy God. By nature, we just go astray. We do our own thing. We make life work on our own terms. And the Bible says that that only separates us from God, but that creates conflict with God. And the end of that estrangement is death. And you know that. Like God, God warned Adam and Eve. You, you disobey. You break the rules. You break our fellowship. You walk away from life. What happens when you walk away from life? What happens when you disconnect from the vine? Well, you, you shrivel up and die physically but also spiritually. Okay? Um, so what's that got to do with Paul's final words here? And here's, I think, the key. Is that Paul circles back on and reminds us of these three key words that bring us into relationship with God, that bring us into his family, peace, love, and grace. It is by God's work of peace in our lives that we become family. It's by God's work of love in our lives that we become family. It's by God's work of grace in our lives if we become, that we become family. And if I were Tychicus and Paul said like, hey, take this letter, teach it to them, urge, like sympathetically, earnestly insist on this truth, I think it would sound something like this. Number one, peace. Okay, you see this in verse 23, peace be to the brothers. And again, that's, that's all inclusive. Peace to the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we just focus on the peace bit for a moment, it would sound like this. Peace be to the brothers and sisters from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Peace from God. Peace from God. And this is a recognition that, as I just said, sin not only creates a separation, but it creates a conflict. And, and you see this in all your human relationships, right? Like when, when someone hurts you, they sin against you. They, they lie or they're impatient or they're rude or, I mean, any number of things. They literally physically strike you or they strike you emotionally you feel a separation, but very often with that hurt, that harm, you feel hostility. You feel enmity between you. You're like, this, this relationship isn't right. There's friction. There's animosity. And we react generally one of two ways, like fight or flight. It's like, we have conflict, so I'm going to fight back. We argue, or I hurt you back. Or the flight is like, you hurt me, so I need, I need space. I need separation. But either way, neither of those is a reconciling response, is my point. So what did God do when sin drove a wedge into our relationship and separated us, but also created hostility? And I think Tychicus would be like, okay, let's, and there weren't chapters and verses, but anachronistically work with me, okay? Um, I think he'd be like, let's flip back to chapter two, Okay. Um, we read these verses this morning. Remember that you were dead in your, in your trespasses and sin. You were separated from God, all that stuff we just said, the hostility, the enmity, all that. Verse 13, look at this. He's like, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace. And, and look, Paul goes on and says like, Jesus reconciled us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility. So he goes to people who are far away and he preaches peace and he goes to people who are near and he preaches peace. And you probably don't remember all the way back there what far and near, two, one, what, what's he? He's talking about Jew and Gentile. And he's talking about people who ethnically 
are different, different cultures, different customs, different background, different history, different beliefs. And he's like, but, but to, to get in this family, you all believe in the same Jesus. You trust and hope in the same Jesus. So now God has come and preached peace to you. Like, I, I, don't, I don't care that you're Gentiles. You didn't get the covenants. You didn't get the law of Moses. You didn't get all that. But like, here's the gospel. And he comes to people that are near and it's like, Jews, do you not see this? How this all points to the Messiah. Peace with God, not through your performance of the law, but through the work of this Messiah on your behalf. And now he's taking these two groups that are constantly fighting and battling and arguing and bickering and hate each other. And he's saying, I'm not only uniting you to have peace with God, I'm uniting you to have peace with one another. And that's why in our liturgy, we did it again this morning, just a few moments ago. It's not throwaway time of like, oh, great, I'm a visitor. I got to shake two hands. No, it's, it's like, no, we, we are not only reconciled to God. The conflict and hostility with God is gone because of the work of Jesus. But the conflict and hostility between us as followers of Jesus should also be gone. And I don't mean that we don't still sin and hurt each other and need to forgive. I mean, we laid down our like, right to just be hostile and angry and unforgiving. So I think Tychicus would go on and say something like this. Yes, you've been made family by the peace of God, but because Christ is our peace, you must live at peace. First of all, live at peace with God. What do you mean live at peace with God? Like, don't raise your hand, but like anybody here, like angry at God this morning? You don't feel peace. Like you don't feel shalom with God. You can through the work of Jesus. And it's not like looking over your shoulder at like, there's probably constant friction and conflict between me and God. I know a number of believers have this view of like, God's just always looking for me to mess up. And because he's omniscient, you know, he knows everything, he's probably perpetually disappointed with me, angry, frustrated. And that, that separates relationships when you feel that tension of like, this person is probably just constantly annoyed, frustrated, angry, upset, disappointed with me. And we got to realize like because of the finished work of Jesus that's finished, God does not feel that way about you. There's peace, there's tranquility, there's harmony between you and God because of the work of Jesus. We need to live like that's true. Like second, we need to live at peace with one another. And I don't know who I'm talking to this morning, but if you're harboring an offense, especially toward another Jesus follower, maybe this morning is the time that God's like, it, it is time, it is past time to let go of that anger, that resentment, that bitterness that's really hurting both of you now and especially you, the one that holds that resentment, you are not at peace with that brother or sister. Um, and, and I myself have had to go to people and either say, and they're both hard, but either say, you really hurt me. But instead of talking about you, I need to talk to you. Like I need to sit down and look you in the eyes, not do this by text, not do this by email, not do this by the phone, but look you in the eyes and say like, you really hurt me, but I'm, and I don't mean like magnanimous, but like I'm choosing to forgive. I want to mend that brokenness or going to someone and saying, I know I hurt you in this specific way and I was wrong. Will you please forgive me? 
And by the way, believer, the answer to that is like, oh, it's, it's okay. When someone says, will you please forgive me? Do you know what the answer is? The only biblical answer is, yes, I forgive you. Not like, it's, it's fine. I didn't even notice. You notice people that are like, it's fine, are the very same people that like were chirping the entire time and were worked up about how horrible you were because they weren't handling it biblically to begin with. And now, even when you confess it to them and ask their forgiveness, they continue not to handle it biblically. But if we have this kind of peace with God and with one another because of the work of Jesus, Tychicus would be like, church, we've got to live like that is true. Um, by, by the way, this is important. The experience of peace with another person is not simply the absence of conflict. I don't have conflict. I mean, I can honestly say I do not have conflict with 99.99% of the world. But I'm not at peace with them. You know why? Because I don't have a relationship with them. When you don't have a relationship with someone, that's not peace. Peace is active shalom in a relationship, okay? So don't just pat yourself on the back and be like, well, I don't, I don't have conflict because I got distance. The seeking of peace is the way that Jesus sought peace. It's an active pursuit of relationship and peace in that relationship. So peace with God, peace with one another. Um, and I think also like peace with ourselves. And I don't mean that in some weird like existential way. Um, just some of you are not at peace with you're not at peace with who God says, this is who you are. You're my son. You're my daughter. You are adopted. You are beloved. And we could go on and on about all these things that Paul in this letter says, Christian, this is true of you, objectively true of you because of the work of Jesus and because of the presence of the Spirit in you. This is true. And you got to lay down this war with like yourself, your soul, your thoughts, and also with your circumstances. Um, we, will, we will always be surrounded by conflicting circumstances, circumstances that um, I, I think if I had to describe our culture right now, it's just like a, it's a culture of angst. You get that? Like a lot of people are worked up about a lot of things. And it's like every little thing is the straw that broke the camel's back. You're like, I can't take one more thing. There's just conflict everywhere and arguing everywhere and hatred everywhere. And these people say this and we're fighting about this and we're fighting about this. And you turn on the news and it's not just like this happened today. It's like there's a spin and an angle and it's more fighting and arguing. And we in the midst of all that have a real opportunity as Jesus followers to say, if God gives us peace, I'm going to park in that peace my circumstances don't have to be at peace in order for me to be at peace in my circumstances. I think Tychicus would say that. So we're brought into the family by peace. Number two, we're brought into the family by love. And going back to the very beginning of this letter, it's like, why, why did God do all these things? For I'm talking about how he reconciled us. He gave us peace. He gave us salvation. He adopted us. You, you ever ask the why question? Paul answers it. In chapter 1, verse 4, he says, In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Chapter 2, verse 4 and, and following, he says, But God, in the midst of your, like, you were dead in your sin, you were alienated and estranged, he says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, then he chooses you, and he washes you, and he forgives you, 
and he blesses you with this inheritance. Why? Because he loves us. And some of you don't believe that. You don't believe like God actually loves me. He sees me, he knows me, and he still loves me. And that's probably why mid-letter and Tychicus is turning there and he's like, look, look at this, 319. Again, it's not labeled, but he's like, look at this. Paul's praying for you, church. And one of the things he's praying is that you would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Not just hear it in your mind or in your ears and be like, God loves you. And you're like, yeah, whatever. He's like, I want you to know, like experience the love of Christ that blows your mind. And he comes to chapter five and he offers up this illustration that I've already mentioned and just says like, here's how much Jesus loves you. It's like he, he chose you as this bride, this runaway bride that you're like, we're all committing spiritual adultery. And I'm not saying you're sleeping around doing bad things with your body, but like adultery is just like, I have other lovers. And you all know in a moment of integrity that you're like, I want to treasure God. I want him to be like my heart, soul, mind, strength is for God. But I find myself treasuring other things, distracted by other things, in love with other things, pursuing other things. And yet God, God looks at me and you in this mess and just says, I choose you to be my bride. And what does Jesus do for his bride to express the love? It's like in this we know love. He laid down his life for his bride. And I'll go on to say, so therefore, husbands, you're not this patriarch over your family. It's like, my way, get out. I control you. It's like, husband, lay down your, show your wife the kind of love that Jesus has shown you. Okay, so then Tychicus is going to say this. So if we're brought into the family by God's love, then because Christ first loved us, we need to love him in return and we need to love each other. Love him in return. Love him in return. Like every Christian I talk to, if you're like, well, I'm a Christian, and you'd be like, um, do you believe in God? Of course. Do you follow God? Yes. Do you obey God? Sometimes. Do you love God? And that's where we're like, oh, I mean, what? of course. Yeah, I love God. Of course. But, but it's a serious question. Like it's a key word of his opening and his closing statement. It's a key theme of his letter. God loves you. God demonstrated that love. How do we demonstrate our love back to God and say like, God, I, I, I love you. I, that means I treasure you. I enjoy you. I delight in you. I mean, some of the psalmists would be like, like I, eat, I eat your words. They're a delight to me. Like I can't wait to hear the next thing from you. And I'm hanging on every word that you say because I, I, I love you. I treasure you, okay? And then also, do we love one another? And again, love is not this, this stalemate of like, do you love the people across the room? Do you love the people in your small group? Are you committed to them in love? And it's not just like, well, I don't, I don't know because I don't know them. Um, well, then get to know them and get to love them as family, I opened my Bible this morning to Ephesians, or sorry, uh, Corinthians 13. And I just want to read this to you briefly, just to remind you that love is not like, it's not just an emotion or a feeling that you feel when you feel the feeling you've never felt before. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. Love is not arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. 
Love is not irritable or resentful. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Gives you a lot of practical stuff to work with of like, how do I know if I love this family that God has put me into? Because there are actions that look like that kindness that patience, that like you're provoking me, but I'm not going to let myself just get worked up because I'm committed to you and I'm committed to your good. So peace brings us into this family. Love brings us into this family. Finally, grace. Verse 24, notice he says, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. I think outside of church cultures, do you hear the word grace other than someone's name or like a church name? Grace. I mean, grace is our church name. Grace City. But I don't think our world is a friend of grace. I don't think our culture is a friend of grace. We are almost the opposite. We're a meritocracy. We're like, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Quid pro quo. All that. Okay? You got to work. You got to earn. You got to deserve. And grace flies in the face of that meritocracy of our culture. Grace is literally undeserved favor. Grace is that gift that you neither earned nor can repay. Okay, grace in, in Jesus' telling of like the parable of the prodigal son that most of you know, grace is not just the father like begrudgingly accepting the runaway son back and saying like, okay, I forgive you. Grace is the father saying, I forgive you and I'm throwing a party for you. We're going to have a feast. We're going to have a festival. We're going to kill the best animal that I've got. And we're going to do a big barbecue. And we're going to have it out and invite all our friends to celebrate you. Could that son ever earn that by his actions? No. Did he deserve that? Obviously not. But that's the heart of the father. And going back to chapter 1, we learn we didn't choose God. He, he learns like, you didn't choose God. He chose you. You didn't ask to be in his family. He adopted you. He redeemed you at the cost of his life. Why did he do all that? 1.6 says, to the praise of his glorious grace. He wants grace to be the theme of our song. It's why it's like in our church name, grace. Like I realize, why am I in the family? Because I'm better than someone else? No, I'm probably worse than a lot of other people. I'm here because God did a work. God gave a gift. Um, 2, 8, and 9, we read this morning, it's like many of you maybe even have committed these verses to memory where he's like, you did not save yourself by your works. Your works contributed nothing to your salvation. Now, they're, they're good for your sanctification, your growth in Christ, your obedience. That's good. He's not against good works. He's for good works. He actually goes on to say, which God prepared beforehand that you walk in them. But he's like, but they don't save you. You know what saves you? The grace of God. Why? So that no person boasts. I mean, church should be, not only should we be like the most loving family, we should be the most humble family because we look around the room and it's like nobody's above or beneath anybody. It's like, why are you here? The grace of God. Well, what else? Nothing else. The grace of God. It's like the thief on the cross, you know, gets to heaven. And it's like, I spent those first few hours railing at him, mocking him, ridiculing him. Like, if you're really the son of God, come down and save yourself and save us too. And then something happens as he sees the way Jesus bleeds that breaks his heart. And he's like, hold on, you really are the Messiah. 
And I love like Alistair Begg's like, the, w- the way he like tells this story of like that thief. And it's, you know, it's, it's not even an acronym. It's, it's just made up, but work with me. It's like the thief gets to heaven and is like, why are you here? I thought you just like stole all this stuff and killed these people and just got crucified. And you were, you were the one mocking him. And he's like, I was. Um, and they're like, so how'd you get here? Um, he's like, well, I did. what do you mean? And they're like, okay, let's talk about the doctrine of justification by faith. Like, do you believe that? And the thief is like, I don't even know what that is. Okay, let's, what about the doctrine of scripture? Like, what do you understand about the Bible and the historicity of the Bible and the covenants? He's like, never heard of them, honestly. And they're like, so, like, how are you here? And the way Alistair Begg tells us, he's like, I don't, the guy on the middle cross said I could come. That's it. Grace. So, as I hear Tychicus go on, he's like, so, so church, like, does that grace, since we've received that grace, are we characterized by the giving then of that grace to each other? Are, are our relationships characterized by grace, graciousness, patience, mercy, compassion? Instead of gracelessness, You know, I think the source of a lot of our society's anger is simply this. We all think I've earned and I deserve so much more than what I'm getting. Most of us feel I'm getting less. I deserve more. And it makes us frustrated. It makes us bitter. And and yep, life is unfair. You will sow and toil and labor and somebody else will reap and they'll tell people they planted the vineyard. That's how life is. But can this be a community of grace where we admit, what do I actually deserve? I was thinking about this with the startup of the um, like NBA and NHL playoffs. Sorry, sports analogy. But not really, it's not really a sports analogy. This, this happens at concerts too, okay? Um, you know, you're sitting there like at Ball Arena or Mission Ballroom or whatever, and there are these intermission sections where the cameramen are like panning around the audience and they're catching people do funny things. And they're always look, like, it's great. It's great entertainment, like great people watching. I'm just like watching the big screen until that person realizes like, oh, I'm, I'm on the screen. And then like the range of reactions from like, I'm suddenly a superstar and I need to break out my favorite dance to like complete shame to like, whoops, I wasn't supposed to be with her. And they're like, you know, like, you see it all, okay? I just want you to imagine for a moment that, like, it's, it is your moment, and you see yourself up there on the screen, and let's just say your reaction is like, yeah, like, go abs, like, I'm here, everyone can see me. And then on that jumbotron, here's what starts to happen, is they start to show your sin. They're like, let's just tell the story of Matt Hand. And you're like, uh, know that I want that up there in front of 18,000 strangers and a few friends. Um, and they're going through, here's, you did this. Like, and I'm talking about all stuff you can't deny. You did this. And you were told to do this, but you refused to do it. And then you said you did it. And you have this attitude toward this person. You reacted this way to this thing. 
You know, when, when, you, when you were all alone convincing people that you were just loving God so much, here's what you were actually up to. And it just goes through your whole life. I think if, if, if that happened to any of us, like anybody else feel shame? Like that would wreck me. It would wreck all of us. But that would be a true story. And if you just then like get to the end of the hours and hours and hours of all the terrible things and the failures and the letdowns and the attitudes, um, and we're just like, okay, group, like what do we think this person deserves? And they're like, kill him. He's terrible. Like, and you would feel that shame and that remorse and that regret and that like, I, yeah, I, I deserve judgment and prison and whatever. But in Christ. Like, see, Jesus will never do that to you, by the way. Because in Christ, you receive the cleansing, the rescue, the forgiveness, the adoption. And again, not just taking your account back to zero, but part of the grace, part of giving you something you don't deserve is he's like, and now I'll give you my righteousness. And now I'll give you Jesus' inheritance. Just heaped up and heaped up and heaped up. And so in light of what we've received in contrast to what we actually deserve, like who's someone that needs your patience right now? And these aren't rhetorical questions now. I'm closing, okay? But who is someone, and I mean a name, that needs your patience right now, that needs your mercy right now, that needs a second chance right now or a tenth chance right now? Who's someone that needs your forgiveness and not your quiet forgiveness of like, God, I'm just gonna let this go. But I mean, you going to them and saying, let's schedule time to meet. And you look them in the eye and say, I'm struggling with this, but I forgive you. And I just think in a, in a graceless world, in a loveless world, in a peaceless world, can you imagine a church community that's like, we know we're family. So in a sense, it's like, I mean, and I know God calls people away. Okay, I'm not saying that. But I'm saying like, as we're here, we're committed to one another. We're praying for one another. We're sacrificing for one another. We're using our resources, not just like, how does this benefit me? But how does this benefit all and I'm eager to get here early so I can see more of my family. And I'm eager to stay late. And I'm eager to go set up a lunch and a coffee and all these things so we can spend time together working around this story of God's peace and love and grace and seeing how can we help each other live it out. Because I think that is like the whole idea of Grace City comes from the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, like, you are a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. People should look at the church and be like, look at the way... Not, not that they don't sin against each other, but look at the way they're at peace. Look at the shalom, like yes, look at the shalom that you are actively bringing to other people's lives to help them flourish and meet God and experience his peace. Look at the way they love each other. Look at the way they give each other grace. And I just think of this in closing, why this isn't just throwaway verses. I think it's something like this. If you've been with us, um, Awesome. If not, you can go back. All the sermons are recorded and you can do this. But I feel like for months, like Paul has led us on this rigorous, exhausting journey through the Himalayas. And there have been moments that just take our breath. And then a lot of time we're like, that was exhausting. That was really tiring. I need a nap. I need to replenish. But that was beautiful. And now at the end of that journey, he's like, now that we're all back, 
I took some pictures. And let's come over and let's get pizza or whatever your thing is. And let's look at these pictures and let's talk about these memories of what we saw so that we are a church, not just that experienced God's peace, love, and grace back here that brought us into the family, but that so that we're reminding ourselves to continually live in awe of God's peace and love and grace.